If you would please be opening to Revelation chapter 16. We're getting back into our study together of Revelation. It's got 22 chapters, so we got, we, we've made it a long way. We've got some more to go. But I, I trust this has been a fruitful study for you and a helpful study for you as I've interacted with the Lord over this. Uh, there, there's some depth to what's going on in the scriptures that sometimes uh, leaves me scratching my head just like I'm doing right now. But I know that God is faithful. Uh, also, wanted to, before we get into the word, wanted just to give a, a praise report for all the prayers you've been praying for Lori Miltenberger. She is home. She went home yesterday, so we're very excited about that. That's an answered prayer. Um, she has gained some more strength back, which is awesome. Uh, but there is a road ahead for them that we just want to love on and pray for and continue to pray for. So we're grateful for God's mercy showing up in, in very tangible ways for them. Uh, we will be doing a, a, a meal train for them, and that information will go out either today or tomorrow. So just be, on, uh, be aware for that and be on the lookout for that. We just want to bless them and care for them as they are uh, recuperating. It's been a week. It's been a week for the Miltonberg clan. And we are, uh, we're just so thankful that God answered every prayer to the detail. And, and uniquely, I was talking to Stu and Nancy the other day, and uniquely, many of us sense this desire and need to pray for wisdom for the doctors. And it was one doctor in particular that said, hold on a second. I've never seen something like this before. Let's just do another test. And that was very helpful to indicate, oh, there's something else going on that needs to be uh, addressed first. So we're just very, very grateful uh, for the, the prayers that we have been stirred to, to ask God, but he, he answers prayer. Church, he answers prayer. And so whether we've been praying something forever and feeling like God's not paying attention anymore or we're afraid to ask, let's ask God. Let's ask him. All right, Revelation 16, verse 1, if you follow along. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like, a, like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For you have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you were given them the blood, you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel, pour, angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. 
The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, and to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they, were, they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that is called, that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there, there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was the earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drink, drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Lord, as Chris prayed earlier. We ask for your spirit's illumination and understanding for tough passages. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is uh, it's a tough, tough thing to read, tough thing to hear. And, and remember, we looked at chapter 15 a few weeks ago. This is all coming from God's sanctuary, God's presence. He is fulfilling his plan to do two things. He's going to judge unbelievers, those who are still and choosing to remain in their rebellious pride toward him. And the second thing is he is vindicating the faith of his holy ones. But he does it in ways that make us confused. Because it messes with our knowledge of God's love. It messes with the fact that we just say, does it have to be that severe? You know, in our men's study, we're going through the book of Romans on Wednesday mornings. And this past week, uh, we were in chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul is writing in Romans. And he comes to this place of saying, behold, the goodness of and severity of God. And we see that connection a lot of times in Scripture. Now, it's, uh, a lot of people will look at the Old Testament and think that God is just a flying off the handle and the Old Testament God is just annihilating everybody and his son needs to come to placate him and make him, Dad, just calm down, take a breath, sit down, have your lemonade, I'm going to go deal with things. And then in the New Testament, all of a sudden, God's like, okay, good, Jesus did it, so I'm not mad anymore. That's not an accurate view. Because we see the goodness and the severity of God in the Old Testament. We see the goodness and the severity of God in the New Testament. 
we see the goodness and the severity of God in Jesus on the cross. That's the climax of his goodness and his severity. But his severity makes us feel a little weird. And that's okay. I'm always reminded of Pastor Tim Keller years ago. He tweeted out this phrase, and I've just, it's been helpful for me. Um, it's good to have a God that we disagree with so we understand he's not the, just the product of our imagination. You know, because you know how we always win the arguments in our heads? If, we, if we're thinking of God in our own way, we'll always agree with him. Of course he's God. And there's, that's the new spirituality that's out there that prophetess Oprah Winfrey is, has been promoting for a long time. It's just you just figure out a God that you like, everything will be good. And live out what you think is... But when we want to be faithful with the scriptures... We want to be faithful to go through these things and say, God, I see the severity. And it should, it should disrupt us a little bit. We should feel the pain of those who are scorched by the fierce heat of the sun and those who have painful sores on their, their skin. And the false worship, those should, should be painful things that we feel. And compassion should come from us. But we want to be faithful to say, God, your ways are not my ways. And I trust that you are still, you are, you are good and just to condemn evil and judge it. But you are also good and great to vindicate the faith of your holy ones. Because both of those are going on. And we've seen that in the concurrent cycles of judgment with the seals and the trumpets and the bowls now. Remember? We have this fun little uh, nesting set that my daughter Beth helped me paint. This is, this is to help us understand that there, there is a, a cycle, there's concurrent cycles of all of these things. God is, is showing us here are these things that are being done already. And, and typically one through four of the seals, trumpets, and bowls, it's ongoing right now as we're living life. But all of them are moving towards something. They're moving toward a center. So we have the seals. And at the same time as the seals, we have the... Did I line that up? Oh, I did. Remember you OCD people. Uh, here's the trumpets that are there. And the trumpets give way... Sorry. Trumpets give way to the, to the bowls. And you can kind of think about it this way. As we look through this, they're getting more intense. And so the bowls we come to, remember, with the trumpets, it was a third or a fourth of the earth is with the bowls, it's everything. So we have this intensification of what's going on with these judgments being revealed, but all of them are moving toward, they're, they're moving toward a, a, a locus, a moment that's coming. And what's that moment? Jesus coming in the clouds on a white horse to bring us to him. Oh, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. So I hope this is helpful in understanding how these are going, uh, how these, are, these cycles are concurring. But when we get to this intensification thing of the bowls, we see something that God wants to reveal. And I put this little chart in your notes. Hopefully this will help you. Uh, the trumpets and bowls line up directly. Where trumpet one and Trumpet one and bowl one are, deal with the earth, and then the second of both deal with the sea. The third deals with water sources, what, what, what provides sustenance and life through drinking water. 
The fourth of the trumpets and bowls deals with the sun. And that those are the ones that are ongoing, keep, even as we're living life today. And trumpets five and trumpet five, bowl five, deals with a, a satanic element that Satan's dwelling or his throne is being judged. And then the trumpet six and bowl six uh, deals with, both of them list the, the river Euphrates. And there's something about a, a border that people are going to cross. And then we have the seventh of each that deal with the final culmination of a cosmic shift, flashes of lightning, earthquakes, Jesus returning. Now with the trumpets and the bowls, it could be different perspectives on the same events where the trumpets might be what the church is experiencing and the bowls might be what the world is experiencing. But either way, these are another... uh, Another cycle unfolding in the plan of God to judge rebellious unbelievers and vindicate his faith, the faith of his sons and daughters. Now, as we look at this, um, it's hard to think about how God will do these things with finality, given what we know about and what we've experienced of his love. But God is still a holy God. And we are okay to to remember that he thinks very differently than we do. We are made in his image, but we we lack the complete understanding of who he is because he's God. He's infinite. He's a just God who cannot, not just will not, he cannot let evil go unpunished. But God will have the last word in judgment. But listen, even in this passage, we see he has the last word for mercy as well. His mercy is still evident in this. His judgment is serious, but we continue to see these glimmers of his mercy even within his harsh judgments that are revealed. And there's a threshold of sin that God operates with. Remember when uh, Abraham was told he was going to have this land, but God told him, you can't have it yet because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. It's a strange phrase in Scripture. You can't, I'm giving you this, but not yet, because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. What, what does that tell us about God? One, there's a, a threshold that he allows sin to occur until a certain point. But remember, it's not just because he's not doing that because he doesn't care. He's giving opportunity for repentance. That's his mercy that he's waiting to see. So we see both and going on. But our our God is God, and we are not. God will execute his judgment for the glory of his name. And though we don't understand it completely or fully, We see enough of it to recognize, God, I I still trust you that your wisdom and your ways, even though they're higher and loftier than I can ever imagine, you will accomplish your glory by judging evil and vindicating for the faithful. Now, I think there's uh, seven, rather than than go through and and find one-for-one possibilities that these could be... uh, representing, I really felt that there's just some observations that we can make from these seven bowls that are poured out. Uh, First observation is this. God is serious about his wrath. 
which means he's serious about sin. It's hard. We, we, and especially culture, we really want to put the problem on God. God, you're loving, so why do you have to respond this way? But we don't remember that the problem is, is in us. John Stott, um, he said, we often ask the wrong questions of God and we get wrong answers about God because we don't really understand the seriousness of our sin and we don't really understand the majesty of God. He is a holy God and his anger is absolutely pure. Ours is not. We want, we want a self-vindication from the standpoint of, I want to step on you to promote myself. God doesn't operate like that. So when he says vengeance is mine, we, we, because we sinfully go after vengeance, we sinfully go after vindication just to make ourselves feel better because we actually want the glory of our name exalted. God doesn't operate like that. So he says vengeance is mine. We can trust that the way that he's going about vindicating his name and the glory of his name is not something that we have to strive alongside of God to do because his vengeance is very, very different. He's not coming, up, he's not coming from a sinful place like we are when we get angry about something. But God's anger is completely uncontaminated from the elements that we find in our own sinful human anger. But Stott also said this, God's anger is a continuous, settled antagonism aroused only by evil and expressed in condemnation. See, it's hard because we think these represent just a God who's flying off the handle. He's not. He's in complete control. And there's a settledness about him. So God is serious about his wrath. The second observation is that those receiving his wrath deserve it. God's judgments are just. The punishment always fits the crime. In verse 5, chapter 16, we see this. It's almost as if uh, God and John, John seeing this, it's with these three first three bowls. It's like, man, these are serious things. And here an angel steps up and says, before you think that God's wrong, he's just. And actually those who he's pouring his judgment out on, they deserve it. But he's just, O holy one. And then in verse 7, yes. And it's, it's interesting that it says the altar saying. Remember, all of these came from the altar is seen. Heaven is open. In chapter 15, heaven is open. The altar is seen. And now the altar says. I don't know what that means. I don't know. I never heard an altar talking ever in scripture. But we have the altar saying, yes. Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your just. I just think the Lord just explained to me the altar speaking is not because it developed a mouth. Remember what the altar was for? It was sacrifice. So God is again showing that he is merciful because he provided the sacrifice to escape our judgment. So when we say he's just, we look at Jesus and put him on display. Hey, Jesus is the one that's just. So pretty cool. True and just are your judgments. So we can have confidence that his judgment on Jesus really did work and we really can be set free from our sins. That's, that's really cool. Now, it is easy 
to think that God gets overboard in his wrath, but we forget how evil we are. And our propensity toward pride and just selfishness. We just think of ourselves. We love ourselves. And if everybody else would just love us like we love us, our lives would be great, right? And why can't everybody see that I'm the greatest human being and just agree with it? Your life will be happier, I promise. Because I won't be angry with you. There won't be any tension. So just love me like I love me. Now, Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. We, we don't get to him. And God's intended, God's intended purpose for us is what? Glory. That's how we created Adam and Eve, to be glorious in his presence. But we, and we fail at that. Now, the concept behind this verse is actually a marksman with a bow and arrow missing the target. Like you see the target and you want there, but every time you do like this, there's just a wind of our pride that moves the arrow off the target. A shot was taken, but it missed the mark. Now the sin is that we didn't get a bullseye. It wasn't just like, we're like, oh, but I got, I got the outer edge. It hit the outer edge, God. It's good. It's fine. No, the wind blows it totally off the mark. And to miss the mark is to sin, to not live how God created us to live for his glory. Now, before we think that maybe God is just unfair to hold us to such a standard, we have to look deeper into ourselves. We, we, go, to the, we go into the route of unfairness because we generally see ourselves as pretty good. I'm pretty good. I'm not Hitler. I mean, don't put me by Mother Teresa, but... I'm pretty good. Scripture tells us there is no, not one, not one that can say we are good. Remember the, the young ruler that came to Jesus and greeted him and said, good teacher. What did Jesus respond? Kind of a harsh response. Oh, there is no one that's good. Just God. He did, he's good. Jesus was good. But he reserved that and said, because he, I think he saw into the heart of this man. This man came to self-justify. He, he thought he was good because he followed all the rules. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus plays along with him. All right. He lists, he lists the commandments that are easy to do between people. He's like, I've done that. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. So that man thinking, oh, I just got Jesus like stamp of approval that I'm a good person. And then what Jesus tell him? But you lack one thing. Go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Follow me. What the man walked away sad because he had much. So this, this man actually, he, he was doing all of his barrier for goodness is how he's treating people. It's like, I'm treating people just fine. But how did he treat God? Well, his idol was his security and his stuff. So he, commit, he broke the first commandment, have no other God except God. He didn't realize that he was already not good because he was only looking at himself and trying to look around him for that. We tend to do the same thing. Now, as we look at this wrath that God measures out, uh, he does base it on the severity of sin and rebellion. The punishment, like I said before, the punishment will always fit the crime. Uh, another hard concept for me 
when I think in the scriptures and when I read the scriptures is the experience that Saul, Samuel told Saul and, uh, to go and annihilate the Amalekites. Remember this story in 1 Samuel? Uh, he tells him, Saul, take your army and go. Kill all the men. Kill all the women. Kill all the children. Kill all the livestock. There should be no remnant left of them whatsoever. That's hard for me to read. It's hard for me to conceptualize. Like why, God? It's the only time that God said that. That, that type of annihilation. Uh, people want to think like God said that all the time. And then people in the Old Testament kind of like, all right, God's a little overboard. We'll just, we'll hem it back. Just the war. Just the armies. No, that's the only time that God said it. It's the only time he commanded it. And it's rough to read that. It, it still marks us. But when we think about the Amalekites, they were a brutal people. They were a very brutal people. They were relatives of the Israelites. They were descended from Esau, where all the, the tribes are descended from Esau's brother Jacob, who became Israel. So they're blood relatives. But they provoked and picked on Israel for 400 years. And their desire was to annihilate Israel. They attacked him at their weakest. They had just crossed the Red Sea. Here, Amalekites come. Israel's not provoking them. They come, and that's the the war that Joshua, the battle that Joshua is fighting. And when, when Moses had his hands raised, they were winning. And when they fell, they would lose. And so he had Aaron and Hur hold his hands up. It was the, against the Amalekites. And God said then, they came unprovoked. And they were brutal. Agag, which is like a title, King Agag was not a, a particular person like Pharaoh, or the, just a title for the kings of Egypt. Agag was a title for the king of the Amalekites. So Samuel said, just like you made women childless in your brutality, God's going to take it out on you. Now, that punishment, God judged them. Now, I'll be very straightforward and honest with you. I'm really glad I, don't live in the Old, I didn't live in the Old Testament time period. I'm very glad that I didn't have to go to war in that way because God was executing his judgment. Now, there's always a threshold. He wants people to repent. He gave. Now, after, after the Amalekites, remember, Saul spares some of them. He doesn't. He spares the livestock and he spares the king. He was just weird. Samuel says, you didn't do this right. You didn't obey God. Well, I have sacrifices for God. He says, no, to obey is better than sacrifice. You missed the point of what God was calling you to do. So then... Uh, they think, well, everything's gone anyway. Samuel went over and killed King Agag, and so it was done, right? And then all of a sudden we get to the book of Esther, 600 years later, and there's Haman and Agagite, a descendant of one of the Amalekite kings who had been spared somehow. So for a thousand years, remember Haman, how much he loved the Jews? Hated them. With a passion. Built a gallows. 50 feet in the air. To hang Mordecai on. That's brutality. 
But it was in it was it was something that he was instructing his own boys in. He was really this rage. That's a thousand years, y'all. From the Red Sea to that, that's a thousand years. So God waits. There's a threshold, but the door does close at some point. And that's what we see with that seventh bowl. Those who stand under God's wrath have chosen the side of the beast. They've chosen that side and they deserve the wrath. Third observation, God vindicates his glory above all other gods. When you look at the different bowls that are pointed out, uh, they correlate very closely to a lot of the plagues that God pour, God had uh, toward Egypt when his people were in Egypt, when Moses came and they did the ten plagues. But when God did that in Egypt, he was going, each one of those went after a particular Egyptian god it was almost like the top ten that God wanted to prove to the Egyptians and to the Israelites. Because the Israelites, remember, they didn't... Who's this God that sent you here? We're in our suffering. And when they're, they're in the wilderness, like, can we just go back to where we were and serve those gods? Because they came through for us in ways that this God, Yahweh, is not coming through. The Israelites were serving these gods too. So God comes on the scene, and with each one, each one of these plagues, he says, these are false gods. I'm the real God. And slowly, look, what is happening? All, he's capturing Israel's heart. He's capturing the hearts of his own people so they trust him more and more. So when he vindicates our holiness, we see these things happening. We can trust him more and more. So God, he, he frustrates and he dead ends all the means of sufficiency that we create to trust in rather than God. He, create, he, he crushes human idols. And he does these in particular ways with the earth. There's a suffering that comes. Remember, uh, we, the earth represents the work that we do, the labor that we do. But now, uh, working as the dust, we come from dust, we go to dust. But the suffering that now happens is in the form of physical pain. So maybe this is God showing us that we, we, hum, we, I, we have an idol sometimes of physical health. Now, it's important to be healthy, to be good stewards, as God wants us to be. But we know the people that will idolize physical health. The sea, representing the commerce that happens. This is John, a fisherman, who is writing this, and he's understanding, perhaps understanding this. But in the sea, everything dies when this blood is introduced to it, like a corpse and coagulated blood, and it's nothing. So now, nobody can go on the seas, and nobody's getting rich on the sea. And could this be God showing us that our idol of sufficiency in the economy and our own investments is futile? Then the water source becomes blood as well, poisonous. Could this, could this be the idols of the medical breakthroughs that everybody's looking for? To do what? To make life last long. Billions upon billions of dollars are spent to have a suffering-free life and a prolonged life. To make it not stop. But we know it, it stops and our bodies break down. But our culture, unbelievers, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to have another breakthrough because we can't have suffering. We can't have tragedy. Now they're, they're yearning for heaven, but they're doing it in a way that says, God, I don't need you. I really hate you. And I wish you just would show up sometimes because I don't see you anywhere. Then the bowl is poured out on the sun with this fierce heat. 
And, and maybe this is God's pronouncements on a man's responsibility and desire. Maybe it's the idol of human appearance. You get sunburned. Like how many people are so, I got to get my tan to make sure that I look good for other people. Maybe the sun's not working like it used to. And then darkness. A bowl is poured out. This is um, where the kingdom, the, the kingdom that everybody operates in, in in the world is either light, the kingdom of light, which is Jesus, or the kingdom of darkness, which is Satan's. Maybe this is the idol of wisdom and intelligence. But there's also with darkness a fear of being alone and how often people make choices because they just don't want to be alone. They, they make Sinful choices or compromising choices because they just don't want to be alone. And then there's this, this sixth bowl, which is on the great river Euphrates. And you've got now this unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And then they spew things like frogs. That's weird. Kind of don't know what that means. But if we think about Egypt... When the frogs, the plague of the frogs was out there, the Egyptian magicians replicated, somehow replicated that frog plague. So I think these, the frogs represent deceptive speech, deceptive forces that are looking to take down God's people and to keep the world blinded. The, the, what Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them to do his will. And then that seventh bowl is just cosmic forces. The astrology can't sustain. Forecasts are futile, ultimately. I'm glad we have forecasts, especially during hurricane season. But we, we are futile to think that all we can obey this. Now, uh, a word about climate change, if, you, if I may. I do think the earth is warming. Personally, I don't have any scientific degree. I, don't, I, ha, I technically have a minor in science because when I was at LSU, I was looking to do physical therapy school. I got a lot of science classes, but biomechanics doesn't help me look at the sky and figure out that this is changing. Okay, I'm, This is what I think because I know the scriptures and we want to be able to be informed by them. Uh, and we have reasonableness to ask questions. I'm not antagonistic to people who are saying, oh, we got to protect the earth. We've got to protect the earth. No, because you know what they're sensing? If the earth keeps going like this, it's going to end. Yep, because we know the seals, and we know the trumpets, and we know the bowls point to the earth ending. So we don't have to be antagonistic with that. It actually can be a great lead-in to say, yep, one day this earth is going to end. But you know what? We don't have the power to keep it, keep it alive and to keep it turning. God's in control. It's a wonderful opportunity. So it can't be, it's not, it's not, Appropriate for you to be antagonistic toward it. Now, I think the earth is warming. And I think probably the earth has warmed in its history many times. We know there have been many ice ages. We've only been keeping track of this stuff since like 1900. That's not a long time. But yet, C.S. Lewis has this phrase that when every generation thinks they're smarter than everybody else that came... And so it's this chronological snobbery that everybody has. Like, <laughs> we know what's going on. They didn't have the knowledge that we have. 
Some of them are really smart. <laughs> the guy who created the figure out how to keep track of forecasts, that's a smart guy or girl, whoever it was. But we know all of this is rumbling and moving toward a cataclysmic event where the earth will end. But here's the reality. People want the earth to end because we want heaven. We want God's plan, but we have to do it God's way. So we are to be good stewards with what we are to do on the earth. We're to be good stewards. We're to take care of stuff. Because God gave us that. We're to rule over things, but we're to take care of it as as sons and daughters of the king and creator who put us on this earth to, to cultivate and flourish on the earth. Now, fourth observation. Boy, words have been really hard to come by in my mind over the past few weeks. I don't know why. Just because I'm getting old. All right, observation number four. The unrepentant remain unchanged. Their hearts are still hard. This is, for me, this is the hardest thing to, con- to conceptualize in this chapter. In verse 9, they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over the plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. That's a scary verse to me. The hardness of heart. Verse 11, and curse the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They're blaming God for how life is and how miserable it is. They did not repent of their deeds. Verse 21, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each. The heaviest hailstone that's ever been recorded is less than two pounds. 1.93 pounds. 100 pound hailstone. Do some damage. About 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail. Because the plague was so severe. God, why do you have to be so severe about things? Why can't you just be more loving? This hardness of heart, it grips me. Because we have to still understand, y'all, given the opportunity, people still want to kill God. If Jesus somehow, if we didn't know that he was coming back on a white horse, maybe just came back walking the earth, when people figure out who he is, they'd still want to kill him. They'd still want to to remove him from the face of the earth. And look, in verse 10, they gnawed their own tongues. This is some intensity. There's an infliction of harm on themselves before they will repent. And we feel that struggle when we've, we've, we've shared the gospel with our loved ones so much. And we just think, this makes so much sense. But why doesn't it make sense to you? Because God was gracious to us. And we have to pray that they will repent. But the fact that so many will not, it burdens my heart. Observation number five, God will win the war. He will win. Jesus wins. He wins everything. Now, the battle, we're told, is the battle at a place in Armageddon. That's a, it's actually a made-up word because in the original language, it's Har Megiddo. And we know Megiddo from the Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's, I don't think this is a physical battle between nations. And, and the church or on Israel, I think this represents a spiritual battle between everybody who hates God and everybody who loves God. But it's fought in the spirit realm. I think it's a representative battle 
that of battles that were physically fought in Megiddo. We see in the Old Testament, Israel had a lot of fights there, a lot of battles there. Also, it was right in between Mesopotamia and Egypt. So when they would meet one another, they would start fighting in the plain of Megiddo as well. And it was common for civilizations to fight there. Uh, God demonstrated his victory with Israel there. So I think we remember that in Israel's history, there was a victory. So there's a promise for the church that even with Armageddon, whatever that represents, we have victory. Jesus wins. Now the army will assemble, but remember this. The battle really isn't fought at that time. Because what happens? Jesus shows up and it's done. So look, there, there are, there's this accumulation of people and things and kings and stuff. I think it's in the spirit realm. It might, it might manifest itself physically in particular ways. But what I think is very interesting is that we don't ever see the battle like this. Because Jesus shows up. They'll, sinners will try to accumulate to fight God, but they'll never have the opportunity to fight him. Because Jesus shows up and everybody obeys now we have the, uh, the afraid, Euphrates, Euphrates, I'm so afraid. Euphrates is dried up. And if we're remembering the correlation again to Israel's escape from Egypt, this could symbolize the Red Sea being dried up. And so Pharaoh's forces come like, oh, we got them now. And then boom, God judges them. And so there might be this rise, this intensity of people thinking like, they, they, we got God now, we have them. The, the border is down, we can get to God's people, we have them now, we can annihilate them. And then what? God shows up, boom, with his judgment. Kings and sinners assemble, but Jesus interrupts the party to bring his kingdom on earth. And he does it with his word, because his word is, remember that sword, now, sixth observation, God's mercy is still on display. There is time in between the bowls to give sinners time to repent. And God doesn't close the door on them quickly, even though they are cursing him and accusing him of wrong. People accuse God, even in our culture, people accuse God of standing on the sidelines, inactive in the face of suffering and death. Why won't God just show up and do something? He is doing something. He's operating in his patience to give people time to repent. But one day the door will be closed forever. And then Jesus gives this promise. And John remembers this promise in verse 15. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and seen, being seen exposed. Jesus is... He's coming, but we know that Matthew 24, he's coming as a thief in the night. So stay awake, be ready. Don't fall for the deceptive frogs. Be ready. This is mercy on display. And then a, another observation, God's judgment will be done. It will come to an end. And that's very helpful for us to think about. God will pour out his wrath to bring evil and suffering and tragedy to a final end. Seems a little counterintuitive, but this, again, this is the mystery of God's ways and, and how he operates. But the promise is that we'll, it will all come to an end. Suffering will come to an end. And we see this ultimately in the cross of Christ. And all of our fighting against God 
We, see, we fight against him, and then when we finally surrender to him, what? Peace comes over us. He has the final word. Stop fighting. Be still and know I am God. Now this phrase, it is done, I have to think that John remembered what he wrote in the gospel account when Jesus and heard the words of Jesus on the cross. When Jesus is taking the judgment of our sins, he said what? It is is finished. Look, his mercy shows up. He has the last word in mercy, the last word in judgment. The last word in mercy is it is finished. Trust me and I will come make you alive to me. The the last word in judgment is it is done. Closes the door finally. But this is where we recognize that what Jesus has done for us to take our judgment away and give us mercy. Now, what do we do with this? How shall we now live? It's the same commission from, and the same reminder from uh, verse 15. Stay awake spiritually. Stay awake. Keep our lamps trimmed. Remember the, the virgins who, uh, many of them, spent their, their oil and then they didn't have more when the, when the groom finally came and they had one. And, oh, give, share with us. No way, I'm not sharing with you. I'm doing this because I'm waiting for my groom. We're waiting for Jesus, so keep your lamp, your lamp trimmed with the oil of the Spirit. Seek to be motivated and, and filled by the Spirit and longing to live the life that, that follows Jesus wherever He goes. Don't be deceived by the myth of time. We have time to get to that, because we don't. Invest now. Invest spiritually. Invest in relationships. Uh, invest in the body of Christ. Invest. Cultivate. So we can see God do amazing things, miraculous things around us for an onlooking world that needs to hear the message of his mercy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the promise of your word. Thank you for the goodness of your word. Thank you for the comfort of your word. Even though we read hard things, we are comforted by, by the mercy that you have display and you you operate in, but God, we also were floored that you would save us and send your son to take all of the judgment that we deserve so we then could turn around and have mercy. And God, and a security in that mercy that it's not going to wither away or we're not going to use it up when we still struggle in this life with sinful thoughts and habits. Lord, you, your grace is more because your mercy is amazing. Your mercy is amazing. So God, I pray that we would walk out your mercy and we would live as lights of mercy to a lost, hurting, suffering, dying world. Please, God. God, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and give us joy, unspeakable and full of glory, even in the midst of maybe chaos going on in our lives. Because that's, that's what you do. You restore things in ways. And you, you allow us to live in the heavenlies even though we're still here on the earth. May we live in the clouds of your greatness and your presence. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's be reminded again of our commission. Our go is go, be awake, and be ready. I tricked you on that one.
No, be ready, be awake. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Amen. God bless you.